Welcome to Flower Hour. A podcast completely dedicated to baking. I'm Amanda in Atlanta. And I'm Jeremiah in Sacramento. Hi, Amanda. Hi, Jeremiah. How are you? I'm well. How are you? Oh, I'm doing great. I'm just feeling the love. I'm floating on a cloud of love. (laughs) (laughs) So we just celebrated Valentine's Day. That's why I'm not I'm not drunk or anything. (laughs) (laughs) I love that the love is continuing. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I had so much fun on Valentine's Day. I feel like now I'm on this kick of like, let's celebrate love every day. And I don't know how long that's going to last, but I'm going to try to keep it up because it's really fun. Um, So I'm with you. What did you do? Did you do anything special for Valentine's Day? Yes, I was excited to bake. So Jonathan was going to make dinner and he made an awesome, awesome dinner. Um, And I did dessert. And so I did a Concord cake. Have you heard of that? I have. It's the one with uh, meringues all over it, right? But I'm not sure what's under the meringues because it's probably traditional there too, right? Yeah, it's a chocolate mousse. But for mine, I had um, chocolate ganache that had sliced almonds in it. And I had that already on hand. So I used that instead. And then I put some sliced strawberries in there as well, just to make it a little more Valentine's like. And the fun thing about doing this cake is you pipe um, the meringue layers that make up the cake and you can do it in any shape. So I've seen it in circles. You just pipe discs and bake them. Um, But I did them in the shape of a heart. So that was a fun way to make a unique shape without having to use any tins at all. You just make a stencil or a, so yeah, all you need is uh, a stencil or something to help you pipe the meringue and then bake it and you've got layers and you sandwich that with some chocolate mousse or ganache and then the whole thing is covered in piped meringues and it looks pretty cool. What did you make? Well, at first I just have to comment on that because I really love that you don't have to go buy a heart-shaped pan necessarily to make a heart-shaped cake or dessert. I'm not sure if you, it's a cake, right? I mean, if it's layers of meringue filled with stuff, are we still calling it cake? Sure. I call, yeah, let's do it. Yeah. We're the, we're the boss. <laughs> yeah. So I think that's really cool. And then how many layers did you do? I'm just curious. So it's like three stacked meringues or. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. And you know, I thought it was going to be really sweet, but it's chocolate flavored meringue. And I also flavored some of my meringue with freeze dried strawberries just to give it some, some fun, uh, contrast of flavor. Um, and I thought it would be too st- sweet, but it was not at all. I used a really dark chocolate for the ganache and then the cocoa powder really balanced the sweetness of the meringue and the strawberries brightened it up. It was a really nice tasting cake. Oh, it sounds delicious. I think that's really smart. You did the darker chocolate because the milk chocolate with the sweet meringue, it's just sweet on sweet on sweet and not so great, but that sounds so delicious. Um, and chocolatey because Valentine's has to have some chocolate. I went that similar direction of chocolate. Um, my husband, a lot of times I kind of just decide what I want to make when I'm baking for the family. Cause I have cake orders where I need to stick to the flavors that someone's asked for or different obligations where I need to make the flavors, you know, in a specific direction. But, um, so then 
when I'm baking for our family, a lot of times it's when I play. So I don't really ask them, what do you want? Unless it's a birthday or something. But I asked my husband what he wanted. And he said he wanted something with chocolate and cherry. So I did a chocolate cake filled with a sour cherry jam and dark chocolate ganache. So I'm right there with you with the dark chocolate ganache. And then I covered the cake in the ganache and then I covered that in a chocolate buttercream and then I dripped it in ganache and I played with some gold leaf because I haven't really done a whole whole lot of that before, Um, the edible gold leaf, which was really fun Um, and a lot easier than I thought it was going to be. So I see people with the scalpel and like these really special tools and that kind of thing always scares me off. So It's like, I don't know if I want to do this, but I used a clean paintbrush. I mean, it was for our family, so I didn't even, you know, get a special paintbrush. It's just a clean paintbrush. And I used the gold leaf and then I don't have a scalpel, you know, why would I? Um, So I just used a paring knife and kind of cut little bits, um, however much I wanted. And then I left some big because I wanted it to be like, boom, gold, which was really kind of fun to do. And then I just topped it with some store-bought macarons because I didn't want to make them because <laughs> I'm lazy sometimes and you can only do so much. I'm so proud of you. That's amazing. <laughs> I went to this bakery, St. Germain Bakery. I was being romantic. I will, I, I you know, so it wasn't horrible or anything. So (laughs) the first time I ever had a macaron was on our honeymoon. The last part of our honeymoon, we stopped through Paris and I saw these colorful cookies. It was before they were so popular. And I just saw these little colorful cookies and I was drawn to the color and we ate them. Like actually we just bought, I don't know, like five or six and had them in a little bag. And then we were in the hotel later and thought, oh yeah, those cookies, we should try them. We ate them and we're just amazed at how delicious they were. So I always think of um, that trip and our honeymoon. So macarons feel really romantic. And then I went to a French bakery, St. Germain bakery and bought them there. So it, it was still romantic. I didn't just call it in, you know, but that's what we did. I want to ask you more about the gold leaf. Um, where do you recommend purchasing it? I got mine from Amazon. I just kind of uh, price checked on there and there's all different sizes. You do kind of have to be aware of that. So if you want a really large block of gold leaf, um, not everything is sold in a big piece. And maybe that's why mine was easy to handle because I got little tiny squares. They're only an inch and a half by an inch and a half. Oh, wow. Okay. So you don't have this large piece You know how like with saran wrap or plastic wrap, it reminds me a lot of that, how you pull off a piece and it can kind of start to fold on itself. But if you imagine a very large piece of plastic wrap is, you know, difficult to manage if it's loose and not, you know, grabbing onto something, it'll start to go on on top of itself. But a very tiny piece of plastic wrap would be pretty easy to manipulate. And I think maybe that's what made it easier than I expected. And, you know, I, after doing the paring knife to cut little pieces, after a second, I was like, I don't even need this. So I just picked it up and started tearing bits with my fingers. Really? Yeah, I just tore. I mean, it was like, if you found a leaf in the yard, it's gold leaf. I mean, I handled it just like that. I just held it in my hand and I tore little pieces and placed it on the cake. Anywhere it didn't stick easily, I just put a little dab of water and then put it on the dab of water. I mean, 
a very tiny dab of water, just damp. It wasn't, you know, dripping down the cake. Yeah. Um, and then I used the brush um, just to carefully kind of pat it on there so that I wouldn't smash into the frosting with my finger, but it was easy. And is it affordable? I really don't, as you can tell, know anything. So for these little um, squares, like I said, I got an inch and a half by an inch and a half. They were not as expensive, of course, as a larger sheet. And I got a pack of several. Okay. But I did the math and just kind of averaged it out. And they're about a dollar a square. So that's totally doable. Completely doable. I mean, I used two squares for that cake. So for a very inexpensive cup of coffee, I gilded the cake. So, <laughs> And it's a pretty stunning effect. I mean, it's beautiful. And the way you use those big pieces, I love. It was so graphic. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I think the really delicate, tiny ones are pretty, but... I, I just, you see it a lot. I have to go my own way. So I, I love that about you. <laughs> so I just pressed it on there. So, um, yeah, it was a fun experience and I've already actually today I made another cake and I've already done the gold leaf again. So it might just become my thing. I'm going to be gilding everything. And I don't they have silver leaf as well. I think so. Um, I haven't used silver and wasn't, I feel like we had like a Baker conversation about this with Michael at one point from our season of the show. Did he say something about silver is more toxic? And in, I don't know. So I've, oh gosh, I, don't remember. I, I don't know. I, maybe I dreamed it. Whenever I, I like think about things on a chemical level, I start thinking about Michael and I'm, I, I don't know. So I could have even dreamed it. <laughs> So I'm sorry, Michael, if I'm putting words in your mouth, but, um, yeah, so I haven't played with silver, but that could be really fun. Cause I like the yeah. color change. Well, we have another exciting guest today. We have no other than Andrew Smith from the great British bake off. And he was on set season seven. And if you're watching it on PBS or Netflix, it's the baking show, the great British baking show season four. And he was a finalist and he is known as, of course, one of the fan favorites. He's also an engineer and engineering definitely plays into the way he bakes, the way he approaches baking. And he's even starting to connect the two fields, baking and engineering, which is totally fascinating. Um, I can't wait to talk to him. How about you? I have a feeling I'm going to learn a lot because his approach is so different from what I'm used to. And I just can't wait to learn from him. Andrew, welcome to Flower Hour. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you. Glad to be chatting to you guys. We're thrilled to have you. Hi, Andrew. <laughs> We're so excited to have the chance to talk to you. It's fun to talk on Instagram, but it's great to talk in uh, semi-person as well. I know. Well, <clears throat> it's a pleasure to talk to you too, Amanda. I, you, you put my cake decorating to shame, so I'm, I'm often inspired by your, your lovely posts. Well, that's sweet. I wouldn't say that because I find myself drooling on the regular when I see your posts pop up. So uh, I think we have cake in both of our hearts. Um, but before we go into cake, I had a question about some kind of, it's kind of random, but I've noticed you know, we celebrate all the national days now, like National Chocolate Cake Day or whatever. But recently there was National Pancake Day. And it seems like it's 
it's highly celebrated. A lot of the people I follow that are in England, it seems like a big deal and it's not something I'm familiar with. And I just wanted to know more, like, has this been a thing for a while? I'm just super curious about the whole thing. Tell me about National so Pancake Day. You do day. not have Pancake Day. Well, so we call it Shrove Tuesday. You don't have Shrove Tuesday. Oh, right. Yeah. Ah, yeah. Okay. Well, that makes sense. So, yeah. So, so yeah. it's like Fat Tuesday, kind yeah, of. Well, I, think, I think that must be the same thing. So it's all about using up. Traditionally, it was using up before Lent started, uh, using up kind of all the eggs and the flour and all the kind of guilty treats that you had in the house before the 40 days of Lent starts on Ash Wednesday. Um, so yeah, we, we just do it now, regardless of if you're particularly religious or not, generally everybody gets their frying pan out and starts whipping up pancakes. And usually all the supermarkets, it's when they sell out of flour and eggs. <laughs> um, and it's just kind of a traditional thing. And uh, this year it happened to be the day before Valentine's Day. That makes sense. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Because I've seen this for the last couple of years because, you know, just because of Bake Off, I've gotten to know more of you guys. And as as I'm following, I'm like, this pancake thing seems to be a big deal. But now, okay. So my mystery is solved. Thank you. You would be the guy to ask. (laughs) That's That's not to say you can't have pancakes the rest of the year as well. I saw saw someone, I think it was John Waite, was saying that we should have pancake week instead of pancake day. You know, it's, it's too austere just to have one day. We should celebrate it for a week. (laughs) <laughs> I agree. There's so many different kinds and mm, yeah, sounds delicious. I think I saw you even stuffed one with bacon, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I used to go very heavy on the sweet side because I naturally, most of my baking tends to be sweet. I really got a, a guilty sweet tooth. But a lot of my friends brought an array of delicious savory fillings. So uh, I made sure I kind of did that. I probably had one savory and then about three sweets. So still skewed towards the sweet direction. <laughs> well tell us how it all began did you grow up baking yeah I guess I I I helped out here and there in the kitchen at home um my extended family would be very good bakers so my mum and dad would have done baking when I was growing up and my gran especially uh was very good um I guess I they kind of taught me the basics uh but I only really got into it properly actually once I left university and had my own kitchen um, so I wasn't really mm-hmm. treading on anyone's toes. And if I welded something baked to the bottom of the oven, it was only my own fault and <laughs> only myself to be angry with and <laughs> no one else to check up. So it was really kind of in the past, I guess, four years or so that I started to expand my repertoire beyond kind of just the simple family recipes of cakes and, and shortbread and a pavlova into more exotic pastries and breads and that kind of thing. Uh, And it was really just a case of trial and error. I took a bit of an engineering approach, which really came across on the program. But in in the year before I applied, I kind of identified the things that I'd never baked at all and thought, right, well, that's a challenge. Let's pick those apart, try and get the individual elements right before I put it together into a bigger and more spectacular bake. Because I often think that's where people sometimes go a bit wrong is they just go for the most complicated thing in the recipe book. It inevitably fails and then they throw in the tile rather than just getting the building blocks right. That makes complete sense. I like that thought, yeah, of like getting the individual components where you can work with them and understand them before you're just doing some really complicated thing with all the different elements. That's a really smart way to approach it. So, yeah, I mean, I just thought breaking it down, to me, that was just the logical way to do it. Um, not to science the life out of something like baking, but it for me, it is 
baking is a bit of a science to me, you know, precision. I've never understood how uh, you guys over in America manage to deal with volumetric measurements because I, 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 I don't get it. I've just always been aware. I've tried some American recipes and the inconsistency drives me mad when it's like packed like brown sugar or you know, gently poured in like brown sugar. Guys, being insane. A gram is a gram everywhere, no matter what kind of scale you have. We're with you. See, I love that you mentioned that. Yeah, because I was a very American baker when I first started, just because those are the recipes that I, you know, would find when I would Google something or pull out a cookbook. And it was like, I don't know. I felt like the scale was too intense, like in my mind. And then once I did it, I never looked back. And so I'm trying, I'm always kind of like preaching this, I feel like now to people. So I'm glad that you totally agree. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, do. I, but I know quite often that's it. That's a tricky thing, both when I'm trying to follow American recipes and also when some fans over in the U S want to recreate recipes over here, there's both in the way that we measure things and the names that we give things. I'm sure you've talked about this loads before, but there is that kind of misinterpretation of some ingredients are much easier to get over here and vice versa and translating sugar types and things. Uh, they all have different names. That's true. Yeah. And I don't know um, if you have you ever baked over here, Andrew? Uh, I've. You know what? I don't think I have, actually. I think I've only ever been in holiday mode and I've been baking free. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you. Um, <laughs> I know for us, like when we were baking in the tent, for one thing I noticed that was really different is I feel like the powdered sugar was really different or confectioner's sugar, whichever name you want to put to it. But I felt like the texture was a little different. So even some of the things that we feel like are you know, the same. It's just, I don't know if it's a manufacturing thing, but the cornstarch blend seemed a little different yeah. or I don't know. It was just slightly different. So yeah, the translation, you think it's English, English would be super simple, but it's not always uh, so straightforward. Okay. Oh, I didn't know that. I know that um, over your neck of the woods, things like sticks of butter always amuse me when it's like two sticks of butter. And I can never remember yeah. how, how much a stick of butter is because um, we just get them in bars of all sorts of sides here um but yeah no it's it's a funny one but i know val cooks a lot in the u.s a val from our series because she has a lot of family uh. out there so i think she's kind of well oiled at doing the conversions and, and working in multiple units that's kind of her specialism um but i think i i still need to improve and i keep saying i'll put recipes on my blog into american units um but you do need to test it uh, separately. If you're going from kind of grams yeah. to something with cups or volumetric, you've kind of got to have it tested by multiple people. Whereas if you do it yourself and it's in grams, it's a lot easier to kind of get it right first time. The flour I find the most maddening because it really depends how that person measures flour. Are you a dip and scoop kind of person? Are you sifting into the flour measure? I mean, flour can be so variable. And um, I'm working on a cookbook and, and, and converting my I do everything in grams but then trying to convert it to cups I'm like well that's I mean that cup I guess could be I don't know it's just it's very variable and I don't like it but it's very cultural cultural here to bake that yeah way. and I know I don't know where that comes from why the kind of the shunning of the the scale measure or is, is it just from being able to just have one bowl and one mug and then just being able to do everything just with those two simple bits of kit. I don't actually know what the, what the history behind it is. Do you, do you guys? I don't. That's a good question. It's a really good question. 
I mean, I don't have a, like a proper answer. I just feel like sometimes, uh, Americans are like belligerently independent. So it's like, Oh, if everybody's <laughs> going to do it that way. We're going to find our own way, you know? And so if everybody's using internationally recognized measures, we're going to go the other way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> like the 24 hour clock. No, we won't use that here. The rest of the world does, but not us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Okay. So, um, we have some questions about bake off, which is uh, hopefully hasn't been asked a million times to you. Um, but we were curious because it's it's kind of different here, um, the perception of the show and and how widely watched it is. But what it's like when it ends, like what is it like there when it ends? Is your phone just ringing like mad? You open up your inbox and there's two million emails or w- what's that experience like? So is this when when we finish filming or when it kind of finishes going out on TV? Uh, let's say when it airs, cause I would assume, and, and I may be wrong, but I would guess like your time between filming and when it airs is probably similar to us. Just basically keep your mouth shut and, <laughs> and wait. Yeah. <laughs> Weirdly calm, absolute silence, the calm before the storm. And um, yeah, I, to be honest, I was a bit worried about it cause you hear all these things about, um, TV and how you you can be at the mercy of the editors. And I think I was always conscious of that, that, if you take 100 hours, because it's about 100 hours of footage for every hour that you get shown, you can take 100 hours of anybody and make them look like a hero or a villain <laughs> based on their good and bad moments. So I think <laughs> I, I was relieved once the series started and once it finished, I think everybody was fairly reflected. So that was kind of the main relief out of the way. And I didn't really think about what I was doing afterwards until the series finished. So there was no kind of grand plan beforehand because I'm sure you find it the same, Amanda, that you're just so laser focused on how the show is going to go and trying to not let it on to anybody. You don't really, I certainly didn't think about what I really wanted to do afterwards. Um, And there's been all sorts of weird and wacky opportunities that came off the back of it. So I got to make a cake for um, Prince William who came to visit Rolls Royce in Derby where I work. Uh, which, which was amazing, making cake for royalty. Uh, take note, Harry. <laughs> That's what I, said. <laughs> I know some of the other bakers have been chiming in uh, to say that they, but you know, I've got prior royal experience. Totally. So, you know, just ask, <laughs> ask your brother. Has. Um, but even, you know, beyond that, it's kind of opened my eyes to what I'd like to do in the future, which is get into more science presenting and doing more TV work. And that's something I didn't think was at all possible beforehand. And didn't really cross my mind until I started doing more uh, live work at uh, food and baking shows where I went along, which was quite intimidating to start with. But I find that I really enjoyed that live connection with the audience. Uh, and I've done more kind of events hosting since. Um, so it, it's it's been a weird and wacky and wonderful experience um, that was very, very busy for the first 12 months afterwards. Um, now I'm kind of, it's still fairly busy, but it's now more manageable. And I think I'm better at saying no to things now. Um, in the, initially, I just was worried that if I said no to anything, everybody would somehow find out and any offers or interest would dry up. Whereas now I think I'm better at kind of balancing my own time and making sure I have some free time in the week with um, people that get in touch. That's so cool. Well, tell us more about presenting and creating a cake for Prince William, what did you actually make him and what were the flavors and all that good stuff? So, well, it started off, it's quite a funny story. It started off with 
the most mysterious phone call I've ever received at work, which was someone from like the head of communications who had clearly been told under no circumstances to mention exactly who the cake was for. So she was kind of speaking in code, saying it was a special visitor um, who might like helicopters and was kind of dropping all these. So I kind of sussed out it was some kind of big visit that she'd been told to keep zip on. Um, but yeah, no, it turned out it came from the royal household who wanted me to make a cake and they kind of gave me absolutely free reign. But because he was visiting Rolls Royce, I thought it has to be something uh, jet engine related, which is what I work in. So immediately I thought, right, a jet engine cake. But then I, I, you know, I didn't just want it to be just kind of a lump or, you know, to almost be horizontally and kind of look like a bit of a wonky jet engine. I wanted it to have kind of a wow factor. So I kind of got it in my head that I wanted to make a rotating jet engine cake. Um, oh, wow. The bits that you could see from the outside were edible. And then I ended up using some secret structural bits uh, in the middle to support it all. Um, but it, it turned out remarkably well. I spent quite a few weeks trialing different bits of it. Um, I cast some gingerbread fan blades. So I made about 20 individual fan blades, which I baked uh, with a twist in the oven. Then I assembled those into a cake pan, cast that with caramel so you could lift the whole fan disc out, just like on a real jet engine. I drilled out the center of that so that an axle could go through the middle. And then you could actually spin the fan on top of the cake. Oh, my God. It was on a hidden turntable. <laughs> uh, there's some videos of it on YouTube. There is a video of it on YouTube um, of, of the whole thing spinning. And I was just relieved that it, it worked in the end because the, the most difficult bit, making the cake to kind of surround it was was relatively straightforward by comparison, but getting that rotating bit so that it didn't smash or clash into anything was really difficult. So when it, it, it came off, it was great. And the best thing was when Prince William came in, he he came over, looked and said, wow, that's an impressive cake and the whole thing's edible. And I said, you know, yeah, more or less. And then I said, go on, give it a spin. And I could just see the glint in his eyes when he hadn't realised. And there's this lovely moment where he just gave it a spin. And he's like, oh, that's very clever. And that just made it all worth it. Just that, that moment where it's spam. And I was like, right, okay, that's peak cake achieved. Oh, that's totally something you're going to remember in like, your entire life. I mean, that's a huge, huge deal. Um, I watched that YouTube video because I was like, okay, I need to like snoop around on Andrew before we talk to him. So and that was one of the things I found when I was um, doing my research for this. And I was so nervous watching, like, I think the title of the video said something like that it rotated. So I knew it was supposed to rotate. And I'm just like <gasps> sitting there on pins and needles, even though it happened now, like a year ago going, please spend, please spend. And it just it glided, Andrew. It was beautiful. <laughs> yeah, I, was, I think I was very nervous in that clip because what you don't see is there's about 20 kind of allocated media people behind the camera plus kind of the chief engineer of the company uh, <laughs> so, as well. So, and everybody's just listening <laughs> to you having this really stilted conversation with uh, Prince William, who was really lovely and really tried to put me at ease. But it's in any situation where there's about 20 people watching you have a conversation with someone very famous, you can't help but kind of be really self-conscious. 
Uh, oh gosh, I can only imagine. What flavors did you choose to put in the cake? Oh yes, okay. Oh yeah, flu. To be honest, you know what flavors? I just tried to pick something that was going to work structurally. That was my main thing was picking a robust bun. So I did a. Yeah. It was kind of a chocolate Madeira, so something that would carve really well, and then it was filled with a just a simple American vanilla buttercream and a Morello cherry jam. So kind of like a sharp cherry jam to kind of offset some of the sweetness of the buttercream. Uh, and then the whole thing was covered in kilos of fondant of various shades and a Rolls Royce <laughs> insignia on the front. Um, but for that cake, it's, it was a bit of a different brief in that the main requirement was the wow factor and it all making sure it held up and then taste. I mean, I wanted it to taste good, but I wasn't so worried about pushing the boundaries of incredible flavor. I just wanted it to be a nice cake, but to look incredible. Right. Well, check, check, and check. You, you nailed <laughs> it. You. I was relieved, so relieved, especially because <laughs> I had to carry the whole thing out to the table, and everyone was just watching, be like, "Don't drop it, don't drop it." And I was thinking, "You're not helping. You're not helping. Just look away." Yeah, it, it feels like the tent bakes. That part was really stressful carrying it up to the judges' table, but I feel like that pales in comparison to carrying a cake for. Prince William, like out. To they, the they were table. both similar levels of stress. Um, yeah, carrying stuff up in the tent as well was really unfortunate. If you were at the back bench and you had kind of the furthest, it felt like a marathon getting it to the front with some of the bakes. So, speaking of engineering, um, what sort of things have you learned from engineering that can help other bakers? Ooh, good question. I think the main thing I found, especially when I was trying to get a bit more creative with my baking and doing the briefs for bake-offs was just being curious and asking questions. I think a, a big part of my job in engineering is asking questions, being curious, questioning why things are the way they are, um, you know, not just relying on received wisdom. And the other thing is uh, embracing failure. Uh, I mean, like I was saying earlier, in, in my job, we're kind of encouraged in our research to fail quickly because that means you're learning something and, you know, no, nobody gets it right 100% of the time. And that's the same for baking as well. And I think when people are trying to bake, often they will do one of two things. The first one is they'll try something complicated, will fail, and then we'll say, oh, I can't bake the end. Whereas I think you've got to say, right, the approach I take now is I assume it's going to fail completely the first time. Anything different to that is a success in my mind. <laughs> and I just make sure I make notes of which bit went wrong or what I could try differently or was there something that I haven't understood or I go away and read up a bit more on it. Um, and the other thing is just when I said I wanted to do a rotating cake or do the jet engine cake, the default thing in your mind is, oh, no one else has done it, therefore it can't be done. Whereas actually kind of asking questions about, well, why can't you have something that rotates? And then you can then start to pick apart the reasons that nobody's done it and actually start solving the problems rather than just being intimidated by what it is. And I think that helped me a lot during kind of the creative journey, not to sound too pretentious on Bake Off was just asking questions, saying, what is really stopping me from doing that? Is there a fundamental reason I can't do that? Or is it just a question of thinking around the problem? This makes me curious what, um, because of that approach, what Bake on Bake Off did you feel most proud of like in a way that it combined this approach and then the end result that you really, really loved? I think it was probably my rotating cog pies. So 
those were the first, I guess I've had different degrees of rotating bakes. One was on Bake Off and I've had two since. And I feel like I've increased <laughs> the, the technology level of my rotating bakes each time. So the first one, I just thought, I know some people have done small rotating things on Bake Off, but I thought no one's made a whole showstopper. The whole thing has a movement and a fluidity to it. So I got this in my head that we had to do these pies that fitted together. And I knew I wanted to do something that moved. So I got some friends involved, one of whom is very good at metalwork to help make some molds and kind of the rotating gear to create the illusion. And that was lots of trial and error. But I feel like that really was me as a person. It was I love baking. I love finding out how things work. And engineering is often associated with kind of gearing and machinery. Uh, And lots of folks seem to make lots of Game of Thrones references, which wasn't intentional, but it does look similar to a bit in the opening sequence of Game of Thrones. So there's a GIF, there's a GIF going around somewhere of um, the Game of Thrones soundtrack, but with with my pies in that part of the sequence, (laughs) which you never never know what people on the internet are going to do. It's an odd place out there. Uh, But that was definitely my my favorite and I guess the one that I'm best known for now if people recognize me they say oh you're the guy who made the ro- the spinning pies like rotating pies um yeah I was I was very proud of those I love that that's your your claim to fame is the rotating pies I think that's a great thing to uh be known for and I was really hoping that was going to be your answer <laughs> too just from watching so I'm a, I'm a big fan of the rotating pies I think we should. I think we should be seeing more rotating bake. Have you guys ever made any cakes that have a moving element? Uh, the closest thing would be like the drips dripping down <laughs> the side. There's no. There's no. They're completely stagnant. Now I'm feeling like my cakes are are little uh, sticks in the mud. So I need to figure out how to add some moving pizzazz on my cakes. I don't think I've ever done any bakes <laughs> that move at all. Have you? <laughs> No, I'm. Yeah, mine are totally still. <laughs> there, there is an incredible thing called, and it's what I used for Prince William cake called um, cake frame, and it's kind of like a skeleton, but for cake. So it comes with all these different bits, and it allows you to do platforms and offsets. And it's how you can really easily do these kind of anti gravity cakes. You know, you have things pouring or you want to do a cake that's really top heavy and you need a structure that you're going to want to be able to reuse. And it kind of, the structure goes through the center of the cake. So you take an apple corer, take out the middle of your cake and the whole thing sits over that and you're able to make amazing things from it. So maybe you guys should check that out because I I imagine you two could do some um, fairly amazing things with that. That's a really interesting idea. I'm going, maybe you could do like an upside down tiered cake that way. Like I like the idea of having like the largest tier on top and maybe that could be some kind of a support element. I don't know. It terrifies me though, thinking about that, like that it would topple over, but maybe I need to do some of those quick failures that you're talking about and just, uh, play around with these moving cakes a little bit. Yeah. But I mean, I, it, it's tough, you know, like I, I know I talk the talk about failure, but even now, sometimes if something goes wrong, it is frustrating. Like, you know, I'm not there having a party in the kitchen when it goes wrong. It's frustrating and it's, it's difficult and counterintuitive to do, but actually, you know, kind of battle proven from getting through the various weeks of bake off. It, it seems to be a strategy that works and you've just got to kind of pick yourself up, dust yourself off try and take the positives from the situation. Um, and I think that's something you can just apply in, in most areas of life, to be honest. You know, stuff's going to happen. 
uh, you, you've just got to look for the positives and how to improve. So true. It, it is how you learn. I mean, it definitely, it's weird. Like you want to learn from really easy, wonderful experiences, but it feels like you learn a lot more when you have those um, flops kind of, uh, and, and you don't do it again, you get better. So um, so more on the engineering, and I hope I'm going to say this right, because I feel like it's a word that you have coined, but baconeering. Um, yeah, 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 you said it right. <laughs> yeah, okay, good. Um, I was curious, like, so I know you do talks about this, um, and I've seen that you do talks with kids and just different groups, and I'm curious, like, how do you bring baking and engineering together? Just like, what's a little tidbit from this kind of experience if we were going to get to go to one of your talks? Okay, so I guess the, the elevator pitch is it doesn't sound like there's big connections. And what it is definitely not is just baking things in the shape of engineered objects. So what you won't see at the show is me, you know, making a cake that looks like a plane or making a car shaped cake. That's not what it's about. I want to lure people in with baking demos, everyday bakes that help me explain extraordinary engineering. So what I'm doing with this Baconeering in Space show that I'm taking around is to give you a tidbit of uh, one of the demos without giving away all the spoilers is I use a baked Alaska to explore the engineering behind how the re-entry system worked on the US space shuttle and how it could safely return from orbit. So I've got bits of um, kit from an actual Russian space shuttle that I bring out during the show at the same time that I'm able to torch a baked Alaska. So I'm kind of visually showing with the baked good, the mechanism of how that incredible engineering works. And I've got a couple of things like that, which kind of take you on a journey through how we keep astronauts safe in space and all the demos are edible. I love this so much. Like it's, it's miles over my head, but because you've incorporated something that's approachable, it makes me more curious to learn about it. Like if you were just going to teach me about something about space, it's, it's not something I'm naturally drawn to, but if you could bring something I'm comfortable with, you know, yeah, people often, people often think it's a bit nuts. Even when they come along, they just, a lot of people are saying, you know what? I didn't know what this was. I was suitably intrigued to come along, but the feedback's been really great actually. And I think, I think I have kind of hit on something that it works because there is a genuine connection, a physical connection between what I'm doing or showing, it's especially good for showing material properties because you can talk about all sorts of how we engineer bridges and do structural engineering, how bridges stay upright using um, sugar derivatives. So I do one with a caramel bridge that I alter in certain ways to actually show how concrete works. And it kind of opens people's eyes up. I mean, what I really enjoy is, well, one, feeding people and seeing them enjoy what they're eating, but also just seeing that aha moment or getting people more curious about the world around them. And I think the fact that I've been able to combine it, it's kind of like a combination between a, a wacky scientist presentation um, and a live cooking show. So people go away with baking tips on how to make a perfect meringue, but can also explain how the space shuttle re-entry system works. So it's kind of like two in one. That's amazing. I love your enthusiasm. Where did this Apple idea come together for you? You know, it, it actually kind of span out of the Prince William cake, because that was the first time I'd had to think about combining them. Like that one was interesting because I initially thought, oh, I'm just making a cake that's in the shape of an engineering object. But actually when I started mm -hmm. thinking about it, when I had to make the spinning fan case, 
And when I actually had to drop it in, I had to make sure that my outer kind of uh, ring was really, really perfectly circular. Because if it was slightly like an oval, it would mean that the, the disc I was dropping in wouldn't spin. It would catch. It would be at an angle. And that's a real problem we have when we're making real jet engines. And the way that I got around getting it perfectly circular was actually really similar to how we do it in real life by kind of using a mold in the tin to align all the blades in a perfect circle so that they would go straight into the mold. So that kind of thinking of there's actually some really interesting connections here got me thinking about what else I could do. Um, And the lovely, there's some great folks at the National Space Centre in Leicester in the UK, which is only about an hour down the road from me, who got in touch about uh, they have this taste of science event, which is kind of like a food festival evening, but everything's linked with science talks and they do it themed in different parts of the year. And they took a punt on me to come in for half an hour and do a talk. And it kind of all spun from there. So I did one. It was really successful. I've been back to do others since. And I've kind of tied it all together into this show, which I pitched to a couple of science festivals and I've somehow ended up committing to kind of like seven or eight dates around the UK and Ireland. Uh, this year so it, it's 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 all very exciting this is brilliant absolutely brilliant i love how two things which seemed completely unrelated now create this whole connection and are helping people to understand things oh it's so cool i want to come to the show <laughs> well hopefully i mean i'm hoping to do one in the u.s at some point but there's been i've got so many messages from people in the u.s um because i do some pure baking classes as well and it's so easy to do them in the UK because it's such a relatively small space. And there's been so many people asking, oh, are you coming to do either a baconery show or just a cooking class in the US? But it's just so difficult because when you look at where people are on the map, it's just all over the show. <laughs> and it's such big distances in between. So yeah. if, if you guys have you know a, a great idea for how to do a, a US visit that works and doesn't bankrupt me, then, um, then that would be great. <laughs> <laughs> We're on it. <laughs> so besides baconeering, you also have really a really nice collection of recipes on your website. Are there any that you are would love for our listeners to try? So in terms of recipes to try, um, I've got two. Now, they are both sweet because I am unashamedly sweet toothed. Um, and the first one would have to be my grand chocolate cake. Now, I It's just because it's the recipe that's been a constant throughout my whole life. I think for about 10 years when I was a child, um, it was the birthday cake that my mum would make for every birthday. And it's kind of been passed down the family. And I think all the ingredients are relatively similar to the ones you get in the US. The only one that's different, and you guys could correct me, do you have condensed milk, sweetened condensed milk? Yes. 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 Okay, perfect. Then it's totally doable. Um. And it's, it's an absolute favorite. It's got the most gorgeous chocolate fudge icing uh, and just such a pillowy light sponge. Um, so that would be my first one. And the other one, because I get a lot of requests in for people who have intolerances or free from food. Uh, and I tweaked around with a recipe for ages to try and get a vegan and gluten-free millionaire shortbread. And I managed to come up with one, uh, which I was really, really pleased with, which has kind of a crunchy shortbread base, a date caramel in the middle, 
and some really dark chocolate on top. So it's vegan and gluten-free. And I think it's almost as good as the real thing. That's so funny that you mentioned that one because literally I was looking at your website earlier and I noticed that recipe and I immediately texted it to my aunt because um, her son, my cousin, is vegan. I'm like, we have to make this for Kevin. <laughs> well, I, mean, it feels, I think that the real litmus test when it comes to free from baking is if it doesn't feel like a substitute. You know, that's kind of the... Or either would yeah. I know, or would I feel like I was settling for something less? Um, there's another great one, which just a Nigella plug, because I'm a big Nigella Lawson fan. She, in her most recent series, did mm -hmm. a vegan lemon tender cake, which is on the B BBC Recipes website. And it is, I gave that to my friends, didn't tell them it was vegan. Nobody had a clue. And wow. It's an incredible cake. It uses coconut milk and oil in the batter and then some soy coconut yogurt in the uh, the topping. But it, it uh, Nigella inspired. So when I was watching her do that, I was like, well, what is she going to do without, with, to replace eggs? But I guess it, it's okay just without that, that element. It worked out okay. Yeah. So she uses, um, for the protein, she uses just coconut milk. So if you get slightly more expensive coconut milk, when you open mm -hmm. it, often it will have separated into the thick bit and the thin bit. Right. So she uses most of the thick bit and then just makes it up with a little of the liquid portion. And that is the protein, which gives it some structure. I think she's also quite generous with the raising agent. And you do expect it to sink ever so slightly afterwards. So it's probably okay. got more, even though it uses flour, it's got more of uh, the texture in the middle of kind of uh, like a frangipan or like an, an almond-based cake. Um, but it was it was delicious. I was a bit skeptical because of the lack of egg, but yeah. it, it came out it came out absolutely top notch. Even if I do say so myself. <laughs> oh, we have to try it. <laughs> I want to try, try both of those. They both sound delicious. Well, all three actually, Nigella's and then both of your recipes. And I'm I'm experimenting a lot with um, free from baking, so the millionaire shortbread will be a treat. Yeah, and I do have to, I think I give credit to on the recipe page on my website where um, there was a previous iteration of it on the BBC Good Food website, which I kind of tore apart and modified. Um, but I think, I think I've improved on it. I always think that's, a, that's, a, that's an interesting thing with recipes is what is an original recipe? And we had this a lot when we yeah. were doing baking. And I think the approach I take, if I don't make it from scratch or it's not a substantial tear away from a previous recipe i will always kind of acknowledge its roots so i put one on the blog yesterday which was some um blood orange madeleine and that was unashamedly inspired from yotam otolenghi and helen go's new book sweet where they had a different approach to making little madeleine sponges and i kind of swapped out some of the ingredients and switched it up with a, a syrup but i would always kind of acknowledge the hierarchy but yeah, I'm interested to hear your guys' thoughts, actually. You know, when when is a recipe sufficiently different? Because no one sits down and says, right, I'm going to come up with another biscuit recipe from the ground up. You've always got some starting point. I think that's such a good question. I think about this a lot because um, I, I put recipes on my blog. And yeah, it's like, when do you credit? When do you not credit? Because sometimes also I feel a little strange to credit somebody if I've changed it super drastically because then it almost seems like, their recipe, exactly. like you're commenting, like your recipe wasn't good enough. So I fixed it. So then like, I want to give credit in a way that is credit where it's like, thank you so much, you know, kind of vibe. Um, I know one of the bakers from our season. So we have like a Facebook group where we chit chat. And one of the bakers had mentioned that if the recipe is changed in three ways, legally, it's considered 
an original recipe. I haven't researched this to know it personally, but that's something I read recently. But still, I mean, I think if like you could easily, I think like if you took a like a sugar cookie and said, I'm going to add some extract and orange zest, and then I'm going to dust it in powdered sugar. I don't think you could then say like, I wrote this recipe. I don't know. Personally, I would still credit somebody if I was just changing the flavors out. What do you think, Jeremiah? So yeah, I'm in this cookbook uh, writing uh, class. And so we've talked about this at length. And so the, the way I understand the legal bit is that you can't trademark a list of ingredients, but you can trademark the way in which the recipe is written. So if you basically like plagiarize the method, you're, you're, you know, you're done. But, um, uh, so the technique part, like where yeah. you're saying, like how you mix it. Okay. So like, you know, like if you're writing a bread, you know, a recipe for sourdough bread, well, those, all those ingredients are basically going to be the same in almost every recipe you look at, but it's how the way and the matter which you write about the recipe or the method that's becomes, you know, the, the, the author's um, property, but there's a sort of unwritten or kind of rule that you should always give credit where credit's due. And I totally agree. agree I love that. And I kind of changed the, the verbiage. So if it's, if I just changed a bit, uh, a bit of the ingredients, then I would say like adapted from like, you know, I am very close to the original persons, um, but I'll always rewrite the method in my own words. Um, and then if I've really changed it a lot, then I, I tend to say it was inspired by. So that way I've, you know, also give, give credit, but I agree. You don't want to, it's changed so far and you're like, no disrespect, <laughs> but I've decided to yeah. <laughs> change I think, your I think it's a really interesting one because I think what you said about the method, Jeremiah, is a really yeah. good point because, I mean, one thing I do do when I'm writing up recipes for the blog, I always write the method from scratch. Um, so in, in kind of my own words or yeah. adding in my own kind of tips and modifications. So, but I mean, some, some of the recipes are wildly different to, they, they're so far removed from the original one, I will just kind of claim it is an original and others, others yeah, might only be some slight totally. tweaks away. In fact, there's one recipe I put in the blog for cupcakes that so many people asked for. It is a direct copy from Martha Collison. But I just messaged her on Instagram, said, can I post this with full credit and a link to your book? She said, sure, because I just repackaged it in a different format. And that was totally fine. So I think it's just, it's like yeah. you say, it's just having, it's a bit of a code of honor rule. You know, as long as you're not masquerading something yeah. as your own and are honest with people up front, I think you're, you're in fairly safe territory. I really think too that that giving that credit gives you credit. Like you're leveraging someone, an expert, right? On your way to becoming an expert, you're leveraging, and um, you know, I think it's only can say good things about you as a recipe writer. Yeah, I yeah, think, I, think, I, totally it's, agree. I think it's just good to be honest. And I know I'm sure you guys had the same thing when it came to writing recipes for Bake Off. You know, there's only so many ways you can make short crust pastry or phyllo pastry. So at what point does that yeah. then become original? <laughs> so that was quite a fun period. I remember when we were uh, submitting recipes, just trying to make sure you weren't by rote copying someone. Yeah, for me, the tough one was puff pastry. So it's like you're supposed to write an original recipe for something that before practicing for the show, I had literally never made. So I definitely had to start somewhere. You know, there was no way that I was just going to pull out my own personal puff pastry recipe that I had never made, you know? So very tricky. <laughs> yeah. 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 What, what is original? Well, uh, yeah, that, that is the question. Another one of these uh, questions I wanted to ask is what British bakes do you think American bakers need to try? Ooh. 
good question. You know what? Because I'm trying to think of something that so many, because I guess there's quite a few British bakers that have kind of jumped across the pond. And I guess British baking is still quite popular in the US or kind of, you know, trying to replicate the tea party setup. I know it was kind of a bit of a thing for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you guys, I think cobblers came from the US, didn't they? Like cobblers are a really big thing over there. Right. Is that, is it, okay, right. That's the wrong way around because that's something that not many British people have actually heard of. So that's something that I did a recipe last year for a rhubarb and ginger cobbler. And people would say, oh, what's a cobbler? And then my way to explain it to British people was just, oh, it's kind of just like uh, a crumble, but with scones on top instead. <laughs> that was kind of, kind of my adaptation. <laughs> but in terms of what um, US people, one of my all-time favorites, which is a real classic British recipe, is um, bakewells, but with whatever fruit is in season, really. So uh, I, I did a recipe last year for a, a blackberry bakewell just because I was walking home from work and saw some hanging off the bush. So anything that's kind of a a sharp berry you can use in a Bakewell tart, um, which that's kind of my go-to ultra simple, but pure comfort food territory. Uh, in terms of anything else, I'm trying, I'm trying to think, I'm racking my brains for any um, British things that you don't do across the pond. I know we have this ongoing disagreement of what biscuits means. Cause I had a Canadian housemate for a while and she was like, Oh, we're having right. biscuits. And then I produced these cookies and she kind of looked at me. Like, look, those, those aren't biscuits. <laughs> and I was like, right, well, show me your biscuits. And she made this fluffy scone-like thing in the oven. And I was like, those aren't biscuits. What are you? You're the one that's crazy here. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we've got caught up in the lingo. But, yeah, let's go for Bakewell. Keep it, keep it simple and just go for Bakewell, but feel free to mix it up with whatever seasonal fruit you've got around you at the moment. I was hoping you'd say, like, Bakewell. That's a gorgeous one. It's one of my, one of my all-time favorites. All right, so I know we talked about you baking for Prince William, and I'm not really sure that um, that could ever be topped. But going forward, is there anyone that you would like to bake for, and what would you make for them? Oh, that's a good question. That's like a, that's a real talk show question, that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know what? It would probably be – I'd probably have ulterior motives because I would want to bake something for someone in exchange for, like – a good chat or you know it wouldn't just be a bake and run it would be a i'm gonna bake something and then we're gonna have a chat so it'd probably be one of my science or engineering heroes rather than a celebrity i think which might might be an odd choice but I, somebody who i think would be fascinating to just have a sit down chat with um is elon musk and it's probably probably a bit of a stereotypical answer for engineers but um regardless of what you think of his kind of personal politics or whatever i think as an engineer and his visions for SpaceX and the launch that they had recently um, with the new Falcon Heavy. I think he's what he's managed to do in such a short space of time is really incredible. Uh, in terms of what I bake for him, it would probably have to be some rocket themed cake because he probably has such little time. It would, it would need to be in, inhaled quickly, um, but with a SpaceX theme. So maybe I'd make him a, um, a dragon capsule cake uh, with some Martian inspired um, flavors on the inside. Maybe it would be kind of bright red to reflect uh, the Martian atmosphere. I love that you came up with this so quickly, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to think, you know, linking things with themes. Or maybe it could be um, 
an anti-gravity cake, maybe I could have some kind of magnetic setup where I'd have a magnet hidden in the base so the whole cake floats. That could be a cool thing. So it was almost like a zero gravity cake. I think you're I think I seriously think you're the smartest yes. person I've ever talked to. <laughs> I'm sitting here just my mind is reeling. Yeah. I love that so much. And that you thought of it. <laughs> well, why not? Most things are possible now. We live in an age of such quick advancement and not even when it comes to cake making, but Anything is, is possible if you've got the right people around you or ask enough questions. That's what I like to think. Well, the three of us need to have a baking party. Amanda and I need to bake with you. <laughs> I'll make a traditional round cake and then your uh, cake can hover in and <laughs> steal the show. Maybe I'll be able to, maybe it'll be able to like fit it to a drone or something. Some drone. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. This was so much fun. That's right. It was a pleasure. Great to chat to you guys. Be sure to subscribe to Flower Hour on iTunes or SoundCloud. And if you're enjoying your time with us, leave us a review. We'd appreciate it.